Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to Unqualified. You know today's guests from Garden State, Scrubs, Wish I Was Here, and as the director of A Good Person, which will be in theaters March 24th. Here's Zach Braff. Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to Unqualified with your host, Anna Ferris. Hi, Zach. So good to see you. Why don't you age at all? Thank you. My husband's a DP. Oh, your husband gave you a beautiful lighting setup. <laughs> Look at mine. Mine's shit. Zach, can you give us a recap of your life in the last three years? Since I saw you? Yeah. Well, I just wanted to say, first of all, that you were the very first person I ever heard that was making a podcast. I mean, I don't know if you or Mark Marin came first, but you're like the original OG. Well, Mark came first. I started in 2015. Because I wanted to talk to strangers. I've always enjoyed radio. I didn't have any intention of it becoming more than just an odd hobby. I just remember, like, before everyone and their mother, including myself, had a podcast, you were the first person I ever associated with it. And I think you're probably the first podcast I was ever on. So I just wanted to give you a shout out because I just think that's so cool. In my mind, you and Mark Marin were the first people I ever heard of that were doing this. And I had a lot of fun when you and I did it last time. So thanks for having me back. Thank you so much for being here. And what's really nice about that compliment is that it really does feel lame now to say that I podcast. <laughs> well, you're the OG. You're allowed to brag about your podcast. Even I feel a little bit like, well, we, we do a podcast. Of course you do a podcast. I know. Of course you do a podcast. You know, we started ours the day lockdown started. And it became a real help for us to have this, like, scheduled laughter session. Yeah. I do it with Donald Faison, who's my best friend, and we do a Scrubs Rewatch podcast. I didn't know it was going to be this, but it was better than any therapy I was in. It was like we knew for an hour and a half we were going to crack up. And reminisce. And reminisce and nostalgia. And get to be together. Yeah. Yeah. Nostalgia and laughter. It was like a club. Again, we thought our moms and a few mega Scrubs fans would listen, but we didn't know that it would be successful. But we love it. I honestly think I get more out of it than my therapy appointment every week because it's like scheduled for an hour and a half. I'm going to laugh. With someone who knows you so well. Yes, exactly. We have the same sense of humor. We did like a decade together of inside jokes and stuff that only he and I know about and laugh about. So it's really special. And I often think of you because my experience with podcasts all started with you. I love it. <laughs> How would you summarize your new movie, A Good Person? I'll give your audience a brief story. I have a new film called A Good Person, and it stars Florence Pugh and Morgan Freeman and Molly Shannon. And it's actually coming out into movie theaters on March 24th, which is amazing in this day and age when they actually let you put your movie out in theaters. Yes, it is. Congratulations. So please go, everybody. It's a drama with a lot of humor. That's sort of my favorite thing to experience as a viewer myself. My favorite genre is laughing and then you break my heart and then there's hope and laughter at the end and the promise of a better future for these people. I had a lot of grief over the last four years and a lot of loss. And I just decided to write something that was really authentic and me. It's not about me, though, but it's about dealing with grief and loss. It's about actually a car accident that happens that results in a death. And it's about the two families related to that car accident. And both Florence's character and the man who was going to be her father-in-law, by circumstance, by fate, end up in the very same AA meeting. And just as she sees him and is about to run out, he pulls her back in. And she says, there's a zillion other meetings. I'll find one. And he says, I know how hard it is to get here. I have 10 years. Don't leave because of me. And he pulls her back in. And it's about this friendship that develops between 
Morgan's character and Florence's character and how they both, who were suffering and grieving alone, come together to help each other stand back up. And that sounds very heavy, and it is at times, but there's a lot of humor in it, and that's sort of my quick pitch about what it's about. And Molly Shannon plays Florence's mother. I imagine that you are, for lack of better phrasing, an actor's director. Yeah, definitely. I would love to direct someday. I don't know if I have the skill set or the courage, or I wonder if I'm a little too lazy for the endeavor. It's definitely not good for laziness, but you definitely have the experience and you have the best thing, I think, which is you've been directed by both good and bad directors and you know what works for people. So much of it, I mean, this has been said by directors way fancier than I, but so much of it is casting because if you cast it right, then all you're doing is pretty much not getting in their way. You know what I mean? You know, if you have Morgan Freeman and Florence Pugh, (laughs) they're both going to be so incredible just from take one that the only thing you're really doing is steering it a little bit, steering the ship. You're always looking at the macro, the whole piece, whereas an actor typically is looking at the scene. They're trying to do their best for the scene. But you are the conductor of the orchestra, and you have to go, that was incredible. And I always phrase it like a question because we're in a conversation, not I'm not a dictator. I say, maybe, Morgan, do you think he should be angrier here? Because the next scene we're going to is X, Y, Z. I wonder if we should try one a little more furious. That's kind of what I'm doing. I think the conductor of the orchestra analogy really helps me describe it to people because think of like Florence is like the most amazing first violinist ever. And I can't play the violin like that. But I can certainly say, can you play a tiny bit softer here so I can hear the oboe? I've only had that experience once with a director where I was told when we were making Overboard that perhaps I shouldn't be quite as emotive because there is a scene coming up, truly like providing the structure that I had forgotten about. Yeah. And he even at one point told me, also, Eugenio has this moment and that will be his. And I was so appreciative of that kind of honesty, of that perspective. Yeah. Because you're exactly right. You're focused on the truth of the moment and the sincerity of the moment. And especially, of course, as you're shooting out of order, losing the larger focus. That's what you want. Directing a movie is like, if you have 27 days to shoot a movie, it's like you're throwing a wedding in a different location every day for 27 days. And so you, the director, are the wedding planner. And your actors are like the guests. You don't want them to see the chaos behind the scenes. You don't want them to know that the Teamsters are so pissed off because of something (laughs) and the makeup lady quit. Or You know, directing a movie is just always mayhem. So you create this environment where your actors come to set and they don't need to know any of that mishigas. They're just present and you want them to be their best selves. You want them present in the moment for the scene. But also their job isn't, some do just because it's their nature, but their job isn't to look at the whole macro of the film that you're shooting out of order. It's your job to remind everyone where they're at, where we are in the movie, where we're going to next, where we just came from. And also, you don't know what everyone's going to bring. All of a sudden, someone makes a really cool choice. If the other actor doesn't compensate for that really interesting choice, you then need to help steer that actor so it all makes sense in the scene. And of course, you're dealing with very, very sensitive people. I mean, the stereotype of actors, whether they're famous or it's their first job, is accurate. They're very sensitive people, and you have to be tactful because they're opening their heart and being so vulnerable to you, whether it's a comedy or a drama, and you don't want to inhibit any of that. You want to encourage that. So you're creating a space. You know, Scrubs was the perfect environment because we did nine years of it. We were so comfortable. It was all the same crew. It was all the same cast. It was the ultimate safety net. You could do no wrong, and so you could go so far out on a limb and be so crazy or make such bold choices because you knew no matter what, no one was going to make fun of you. No one's going to laugh at you. And of course, the showrunner Bill Lawrence was only going to choose the best stuff. We would make very brave choices that were sometimes when they worked were home runs and became like some of the most famous moments of the show because we were so free to just be playing. I envy that experience, that idea so much. I've definitely had some jobs where I have felt terrified. Yeah. Just terrified. And it made for a miserable, a miserable time and a lot of self-doubt. Yeah. And you can't create anything in that space. Yeah. Worthwhile. Yeah, it's true. I look back at some of those projects and I am slightly embarrassed about how boring my performance was. No, I get it because you didn't have an environment. You're in your head. 
you don't feel like you have a safety net. Yeah. I think the ideal director makes you feel protected and safe so you can do no wrong. If your choice is too broad and crazy, don't worry, I'm not going to use it. If you're sobbing in the moment and it's beautiful acting, but not really right for that moment in the movie, don't worry, I'm not going to use it. Just like I create an environment where there's no bounds. You're free. That's what I like as an actor. I would love to work with you. <laughs> You're hired. Oh, man. You're hired. It truly kind of makes me a little emotional to think about just the loneliness, I think, that I felt at times being on set, doing something that I, I love, that I felt incredibly grateful for, but also just filled with so much self-doubt. Yeah. It's a part of what we do. I mean, other art forms, you're making something and then putting out there. And of course, that's incredibly vulnerable too. I mean, I'm not in this movie a good person that I'm releasing, but it's so me, it's so my heart, it's such a vulnerable thing to do. But actors have the unique thing of being like, your art is you. <laughs> what you're putting out there is your very humanity. Yes, yes. <laughs> if you could live anywhere in the world for a year, where would your like study abroad program land you? Wow, that's a great question. I've never been asked. Um, it needs to be somewhere warm and sunny because I have a little bit of, I don't think I have seasonal affective disorder, but I definitely notice that my spirit is better in the sun. I can't do gray and rainy. I was like nurtured in moss. <laughs> <laughs> I know Sarah Chalk, who's my co-star in Scrubs, is from Vancouver. And she's like, I love the rain. Rain is my life. I'm not that. So I'm going to choose like the Caribbean. I would like to live in like the Bahamas or the Caribbean for a year. On a boat? Yes, I would love to live on a boat. A sailboat or a motor yacht? A motorboat doesn't have to be a giant yacht, but if we're daydreaming, sure, it's a big yacht. <laughs> and I have lots of cool people on there, and I write and appreciate the beautiful warm water and get to know the local culture and food. Wake up to waves like lapping against your portal. <laughs> I always say to my accountant, if everything goes awry, how much would I need to live in like the Bahamas as like a jet ski rental guy? Yeah. Yeah. 100%. It's funny that we still, I am very similar, like needing to think about the bare bones of joy. Yes. If all goes awry. Yeah. For me, it's sun and friendship and family. Those are my bare bones. I've been intrigued lately by the different interpretations of patriotism. What's your relationship with that idea? I guess I do feel patriotic that I always imagine I'll live in the United States. And it's also tied to this is where my family and friends are. And they're such a big, important part of my joy. In terms of solitude, you know, I know these people that go on trips totally alone. Like they go backpacking across South America. I could never do that. Or I mean, I could, but it's not something I would ever choose because I like my solitude, but I certainly rely on my friendships and my family for serotonin. Have you always been really close with your family? Yeah, always. What traits do you think you inherited or absorbed from your mom? She's very loving. You know, my mom is 82, and I try and let her know every time I see her that I'm so blessed to not have a single issue with her. She was a wonderful mom, very nurturing. She's a psychologist, so she had a leg up in terms of being a great mom, perhaps. But yeah, you know, I try and let her know all the time how grateful I am. And I'm aware of how many people have issues with their parents and they had traumatic childhoods. And I do have childhood trauma, like I would imagine most people do in some capacity, but it never came from my mother. She just did a fantastic job. You know, I used to joke, I still joke that I get free therapy from her because she's just a wonderful counselor as well as a mom. And I bet as the observer of this, you have inherited that. The intimacy. You know what I mean? I imagine you're an incredible confidant. Thank you. I definitely pride myself on being someone who can show up for friends. When I went through difficult times and loss, you see the community that supports you and who shows up and who doesn't. And I definitely want to pay that forward for the rest of my life. So now more than ever, I make sure I'm the person who shows up for friends and family when they need me. I recently read, or maybe I heard it on a podcast, I forgot, but someone say something that really stuck with me, which was when someone's going through something, don't write in an email or a text. If you need anything, please let me know. Just do it. 
you're now putting the burden on the person who's in a tough time. You're now saying, when you need me, text me. They're not going to do that. And also they have too much on their, just do it. At the very least, show up with croissants and coffee and be there to listen. You know, don't say, hey, reach out to me when you need me. I love a good long phone conversation. Mm. I have a, I wouldn't call it complicated relationship with texting and social media and the phone and everything. I just resent it. Yeah. I've gotten off all social media except Instagram. I read a book that I highly recommend to you and all of your listeners called The Chaos Machine. And it's really just about these companies who created these social media platforms and how sinister the whole thing is and how it's designed. Oh, I would love to get into this. Read The Chaos Machine. Yeah. It really was the final nail in the coffin for me. It got me off everything but Instagram so far, but now I have a timer on my Instagram, which you can do on your phone. I get locked out after 45 minutes. That's awesome. How old were you when you first felt like you were in love? Oh, my college girlfriend was my first love. I would guess I was 20. It's the first time I felt those feelings of, oh my God, wow, this is what they're talking about in the books, in the poetry, in the music. How long did that relationship last? Just a couple of years. She did a semester abroad and that ultimately ended the relationship. She came back and we tried to keep going, but it didn't ultimately keep going. I would say it was at least a year and a half of that feeling. When she told you she was going to go study abroad, how did you take that? I was super sad because I certainly didn't think we were going to, in college, be in a long-distance relationship to another country. And I was jealous and insecure that she would find someone over there that was more exciting than me and, you know, a sexy foreigner. And and I went and visited her. And Oh, that's a lonely experience with they're all buddies, oh all the Americans. God. And you're like, hey, what have you guys been up to? <laughs> it was so, it was not good. Not her fault. My own insecurity and like exactly what you're saying. She had a whole new group of friends there and a whole new inside jokes and... It didn't work really well. Some funny stories that are a good fodder for writing one day, but it was rough. Yeah, you're right. There is something there of like visiting your girlfriend in like Italy or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. my God. Will you tell us about a heartbreak? And it can be anything. It can be romantic. It can be career. Anything on your comfort level. Well, I lost my best friend to COVID. That's the first thing that comes to mind. It was kind of a public thing. Some people may have heard of it. His name was Nick Cordero. He was a Broadway star. And he and his wife, Amanda Klutz, came with their baby to move to L.A. right in the beginning of the lockdown. They were looking for a house. And I have a small little guest cottage behind my house. And they were staying there. And they found a house. And they were so excited. And they went back to New York to pack their things. And when he came back, he got COVID really bad. He was hospitalized. Back then, they were putting people on a ventilator right away, and they put him on a ventilator right away, and he never came off of it. Ah, uh, I'm so sorry, Zach. Yeah, of course, I remember that story. That was such an early, shocking tragedy. Yeah, I think a lot of people gravitated towards it because we were told that people that weren't senior citizens weren't dying from it. Right. Also, Amanda chose to share her journey on social media because she sort of built this army of people that were rooting for him and... And also, I think she wanted to broadcast that, hey, this isn't just senior citizens, guys. Look what I'm going through. So it became something that a lot of people knew about. But it was horrible. And I think it's kind of where some of the writing for my new film, A Good Person, came out of. Because I was watching Amanda and thinking, how the fuck does someone stand up after this? Like, how do you, how do you begin again? And there's so many people who go through this. It doesn't need to be on the level of death even. It could be a divorce. It could be a miscarriage. Whatever insert your personal lowest moment is, I wanted to write about standing back up and how we recover from tragedy. So that was kind of one of the catalysts for writing this new film. You know, the hopeful ending is that things do get better. His wife misses him and grieves for him all the time. And she also has stood back up and put her shoulders back. And she has an amazing career and has the most amazing relationship with their son and is beginning to dip her toes in the dating waters. For me, she was an inspiration on standing back up and how whatever amount of time it takes, if you do the work and you allow time to pass and you are surrounded by loved ones who are helping you, human beings are resilient and they can stand back up and put their shoulders back and not to say that we ever forget or don't honor someone who's passed, but we can do what they would want and not spend the rest of our lives on the floor. 
One of the reasons I like to talk about the idea of heartbreak is because I don't believe in closure. You mean that it's never fully closed? I feel like there's scars that help us become more human, that frequently in life we never get the full satisfaction of resolution. Well, I think you reach a certain age where you've had enough relationships where some you can close the door on saying that was not healthy, that was not good, and I don't long for that person. And then there's others where you're like, oh, man, I'll always have a space in my heart for that person. I think that relationships fall into two different categories, I think. I guess in my experience, the wrestling with being forced to be all right with not having all the answers mm. for why things shook out the way they did. Yeah. I'm a believer in the idea that, let's say, if you find out someone was unfaithful to you or something, this is sort of a side idea, I guess, but they're linked. The idea that having the pain of the visualization, some of those questions leading to the hamster wheel late at night, like, oh, in what bed? What text? Like attempting to put the puzzle pieces together. I just don't know if it's ever that satisfying. Yeah. Or the pain of death of like someone close to you dying and reflecting on what you wish you had said or wish you had done. I think that you sort of have to settle something within yourself that some stuff just won't get answered. Does that make sense? It does. One can spin an OCD out on the same thought over and over and over again and obsess, but that's not going to bring you any sort of peace. And certain things you just have to let go. I think people clutching on, they still want to have that final conversation or they, they still think there's going to be some conversation over coffee that's going to give them quote-unquote closure. I think that's still, and this is just my opinion, is someone who's still hanging on and not letting it go, letting it float down the river. How do you reflect on yourself in your 20s and then 30s? As the years go by, you really get so clear on what you like, <laughs> whether that be in relationships or where you want to live or what lifestyle makes you your best self. I think in your 20s, you're just trying everything, or at least I was, for better or for worse. It was just kind of like a buffet where you're sampling, let me try this crazy relationship. Let me do this stupid drug let me just be a thousand ways. You know, I guess I'm not the average person because most people then in their 30s settle into a family and marriage and I haven't done that yet. But I can say in my 40s, I'm so clear, lucid on where and how I'm my best self and on setting boundaries on how to let myself be who I am. Yes, I'm grateful. I don't know how accurate my own reflection is, but I feel like in my 20s, I was jealous and competitive, self-absorbed, fun, spirited, driven, but foolish. And I'm grateful to be 46. Me too. I really am because I think I'm finally so clear on what works for me and what doesn't work for me. And I think if you're a lot younger than us, you can choose this sooner than 46, 47. You know, it took me a while. I think you, listener, can do it sooner. Yeah. Settling in on what is your authentic self and what makes you feel best and being really communicative with your partner and the people around you about what you need and what you want and just being fully authentic. I think the more authentic and fully you that you show up, people will have no choice but to respond to that. So you're not struggling to put on airs or to wear a mask which is so stressful, you can settle in on this is who I am and respond to that. It's just naturally less stressful, I think. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. 
That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Lena. Hi. Thank you so much for your letter. I'm here with Zach, who is just an incredible person. And we're really excited to talk with you. Will you tell us what's going on? Yes. Thank you for having me on. It's uh, great to meet both of you. So I am an adult with much, much younger siblings. So I have a brother who is 20 and he just had a kid. The kid is one now. And my sister is 13, and all of them live at home with my parents. So on its best days, I think it's like a fun, blended, mixed family. But I think that because I'm so much older than my siblings, I really have trouble connecting with them in some ways. My sister, for instance, she secretly had a boyfriend for about a year, and she never told me about it. It seems that they just broke up. And I don't really know what to say to her. Did that hurt your feelings that she didn't kind of confide in you? Not really. She talks about him a lot. She says, oh, I have this friend and he's really smart and he knows so much about soccer. So I think that like she might have trouble admitting to herself that she has a boyfriend. It's interesting. Her friends, her seventh grade friends, they all really like me. One of them was telling me about her boyfriend and she showed me a picture of him and she goes, don't you think he's really hot? And I told her, you've showed me a far away picture of a child (laughs) because it's true. She showed me a picture of a 12 year old from very far away. And so that's sort of where I get my information right when they're all in a group. I was home for a while because I have a remote job and they love to come to my room while I'm working and they love to talk. So that's where I got like a little bit more information about my little sister and her boyfriend. But it didn't really hurt me because it seems even when she's with her friend, she has trouble admitting that he's her boyfriend, even though they are all like, yeah, no, they've been dating for a year, if that makes sense. And you mentioned in your letter that your sister isn't embracing of the one-year-old. No. She has trouble with the baby. I think it's partially because she's so much younger than me and my brother that she's always been the baby. And our parents are obviously older when they had my sister. So there was a little bit of that. She just hasn't been around a lot of children who are younger than her. But it's extreme. Like, she has held the baby twice. Once the day he was born, and then the second time she was forced to for a photo, and she looks incredibly uncomfortable. I once came into her room holding the baby, and I said to her, can we just hang out here? I just want to avoid the family. And she goes, no, no babies. And then I come back like an hour later holding the baby, and she goes, why do you like it so much? We were having a little trouble for a while having her use like human pronouns for the baby. Lena, do you mind? This is kind of a sticky question. I have two of them. Who told you that little sister, let's call her, Zach, you're good at naming people. What's a 13-year-old's name? Um, Catherine. Catherine. Who told you that Catherine's only held the baby twice? Oh, she has. She's told you that in almost a boastful manner. Interesting. Yes. Okay, that's like a source of getting attention then from you to a degree or from her parents. Do you know what I mean? If she's like essentially boasting and saying things like, why do you like babies? (laughs) And because you are the older sibling, there's almost a parental unit idea in your position. How frequently do you see your family? Like, do you feel like the visiting aunt essentially? I do sort of feel like the visiting aunt sometimes. The interesting thing is also that the age gap between me and my sister is the same as the age gap between Catherine and the baby. So she was in kindergarten when I was a senior in high school. I think what first comes to my mind is that she always thought she was going to be the baby, I imagine. And all of a sudden, she's been 
supplanted as the baby in the family. And I bet that baby gets a lot of attention from everyone in the family. That's just my unqualified guess, is that she's resentful of the baby and the amount of attention it gets from everyone in the family. The task will be how to make her feel included and find her on her own level. You know, my mom's a child psychologist, and one of the things she used to do with play therapy was you never lead the child into what they're going to play with. It's a room full of toys. You follow them to see what they gravitate towards, and then you get on their level and ask them if you can start playing with whatever toy they've chosen. Obviously, then they start doing some talk therapy about that. But in your situation, I wonder if there's a way to find her on her level and how to incorporate the baby into her life at her level. Do you know what I mean? Yes. So the one thing that has sort of been kind of promising is very, very into soccer. So she plays with four different soccer teams. And so since the baby has started walking, she bought him a soccer ball. There you go. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Again, the podcast is called Unqualified, so don't listen to a fucking word I'm saying. Or me. (laughs) If you enroll her in like, we need your help. We want to teach the baby soccer. Will you help us? And then the baby comes to her soccer game dressed in, you know, the uniform. And like, he's rooting for you, you know. Any way that you can meet her where she's at with the baby, I imagine would be helpful. Does this issue trouble your brother and your parents? When you try to simplify a complicated issue into a letter, a lot gets left out, right? My brother really doesn't engage with his son all that much. It's a thing where he does have partial custody, but what that ends up being is like a burden on my mom and then me when I'm back. I do not have the best relationship with my brother. I would just say it's pretty non-existent. Before the job I have now, I was a preschool teacher. And so, for instance, the last time I was home, I was like, hey, I think it would be easier if you held the baby this way rather than the way you're holding him because he's just squirming too much. And if you have his legs between your hips, that will be better. And he just grunted, placed the baby on the floor and walked away from me. Oh, boy. And she is incredibly kind to him. She constantly engages with him, my sister Catherine. She is always like, do you want to come play soccer with me? Do you want to be the goalie? In a way that I'm like not able to because when I'm home, even if he is home, I am the one watching the baby, not him. Or my mom is the one watching the baby, not him. Oh, so your presence is kind of resented probably because you've left. It is complicated because... Your brother is a child, raising a child, behaving childishly, living with your parents. And if there is his own issues in terms of his ex, I'm assuming, I don't know where that lands. Do your parents express grievances in the family dynamic to you? Yes. Oh, okay. So let's think about that for a second. Who do you talk to mostly or who's kind of unloading on you? My mom. Yeah. I mean, that's what happens. It's totally (laughs) normal. Do you feel yourself, I guess, resentful on behalf of your mom? Because I would. Like, I wouldn't fault you. I would totally. Yeah, I feel resentful on behalf of my mom, but I also feel resentful on behalf of this baby who, like, does not have an engaged parent. And even my mom, right, like she was talking about gaining full custody and she's like, I can't do that. I'm renovating my house. And it's like, it seems like your level of concern for the welfare of this child is kind of outweighed by the fact that you're renovating your home. Again, like it's hard for me to see how serious my mom's concerns with my brother's ex are. If like renovating her home takes place over like taking the baby at night's. You're in a tough position because you are the older sibling, which your strengths are caretaking, generosity, wisdom that can come across as maybe being like a know-it-all or like the pretty successful one who has all her shit together. And you're absorbing your mom's stress. I want you to be able to be close with them. I don't know if you can necessarily change Catherine's attitude towards the baby, I think Zach's idea is brilliant of just kind of letting them lead. Your brother, I totally understand the idea of like, oh my God, why can't he get his shit together? But I don't want him resenting you. It's also, it's not your responsibility. That might be a little tough lovey, but none of this is your responsibility. Your brother put himself in a position 
your mom is obviously helping him and perhaps enabling him to not be 100% present when the baby's around. You know, all you can do is show up and be the kind of person you want to be, your authentic self. And if you were my sister or my best friend, I would say, look, you can only do your best. This is not your responsibility. You know, I know it's hard to be around, but it's too much for you to ask, especially since you're not there all the time, to have to micromanage these dynamics. And to be the problem solver. Yeah. Because you won't be able to. Yeah. Even if you lived there, you wouldn't be able to. Yeah. You're not going to make a 20-year-old father. You know, he's a kid. I mean, gosh. And he went through a divorce. I mean, these are big problems, but they're not your problems. I mean, I think you can go and represent a healthy attitude when you're there. But I would also be easy on yourself trying to take on the responsibility of all these characters. I wonder if even though... It's always really fun to have a good vent session because your mom is probably leaning on you to unload, which people need to do. How frequently do you guys talk? We probably talk like twice a week, but for an hour, maybe. I'm just sort of spitballing here. Maybe there's like, okay, mom, let's have a vent session. Like, how are you doing? What are your frustrations in the household right now? I want to be your sounding board. But I would limit that and I would label it something so it can be contained and you don't necessarily need to give her advice because I do think she probably just needs to talk about her daily frustrations. But ultimately, she loves her family. She loves her grandson. She loves her daughter and her son and wants to be protective of them. Are you geographically close No, my parents live in the middle of the country and then I'm on the coast in a big city. I wonder if you can start to cultivate, if you want to, if you can start to cultivate relationships with them independently. If you can call your brother and say, hey, I just wanted to check in with you. I miss you. I love you. How are things? Mm -hmm. And he might not call you back. He might not respond or maybe he'll be like, fine. But that's the slow process of one avenue to go, which may be the right one, is to cultivate them all individually. Yeah. To call Catherine when you're in town, do something with her. Or even better, the ultimate thing would be to have her visit you. Oh, yeah. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. I have a brother that's 10 years older than me. And when I was eight, he was off to college and never came home. And he was the coolest person in the world to me. And I looked up to him and he moved out to LA. He was going to UCLA and he was surfing. And it was just like a fantasy character. Like I'm sure you are to her. Be open to the possibility that you guys could have the greatest bonding thing ever if you made her feel special at some point. Maybe it's not 13, maybe it's 14, with a trip to visit you for a weekend. And you take her on fun adventures. I'm not saying you have to, you know, go do crazy things with her. But to me, in my age, I just felt like so adult and so cool to be on a weekend trip to visit my brother and his friends. Totally. She won't express it. At least this is how my stepdaughter, like she wouldn't express her excitement or it was too vulnerable for her. But I now realize that she was totally thrilled. She was like giddy on the inside. That makes sense. She just doesn't seem enthusiastic about spending time with me or doing anything. Like I was like, do you want to do a soccer camp in the city that I'm living in this summer? 
She goes, no. And she thinks that I'm nerdy. And I mean, she says this all in like a very joking way, but I do not think that I am cool to her. I think I'm a little too grown up. And I think that was part of the thing that I was seeking in my advice is how to be more of a sister and how to be less of a grown up. But that's where I think you're wrong. And the evidence is her friends. So this is her defense mechanism. Like, oh, my God, you're such a nerd. Mm-hmm. Like, why do you even like that thing? Like, I don't think in her heart of hearts she believes that at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, Lena, you're beautiful. You're successful. You live in a big city. She is probably in awe of you, and she's probably really intimidated by you. Yeah, I think so, too. I mean, she's your little sister and you live in a big city. And I just think if she's acting like she wouldn't think that was cool, I think she's fronting who wouldn't want an adventure, at least for a weekend. And I really think that her boasting that she doesn't like babies, I think that that's a little bit of a show. I think it's a way to get negative attention. My stepson, for a couple years, he had zero interest in my son, who is five years younger, six years younger. And my son was like, oh my gosh, you're the coolest. It has changed and it will continue to change. They're close now. They have more common interests. But I also think that that was my stepson adjusting to not being the youngest and also this new entity in his life. So keep that in mind. Truly, the evidence that she worships you and she wants to be in your life, she has no idea how, is because of her friends. And I wouldn't take the summer idea too personally. That's just hard when you're at that age and the thought of being away from your friends all summer. Yeah, that's daunting. Yeah. Summer or whatever the length of the camp was, that might be too daunting to her. It was a week, but I get what you mean. (laughs) Okay. I would try shorten it. Say a weekend. My friends and I are going to do X, Y, and Z. You can come with us. It's going to be so fun. Uh, Will you please come? I want to show you where I live. And I mean, if she says no to that, then you're going to just have to be patient and wait till she gets a little bit older, I assume, because I think there'll be an age where that will be the coolest thing in the world to her. Totally. You might have to be patient and maybe it's 15. I don't know, but there'll come a time. And I wonder if like you can open up the door by saying, hey, I want to do something because they are at that age all about their friends, too. And especially it sounds like she's a part of all these soccer teams. So she is not like a solitary girl like I was at 13. I wonder if like, and I truly am spitballing, if there's like a Women's World Cup thing, you could start to engage with her about like, hey, I want to do something really fun for like the big New Zealand thing that's happening this summer. You'll get rejected, you know, for a minute. Yeah, don't quit when you get rejected. That's important too. Don't take it personally. Yeah, it's hard. That's the hardest part. Just keep trying. Eventually, you're going to find the thing and she's going to clock that you're trying. Yeah. Don't give up if you get rejected. That's where I really messed up with my stepdaughter. Like, I took the rejection early and hard and... Personally. Yep. And then I stopped trying. And then finally, I kind of came around and sort of gently tried to work my way in again, mostly by giving her awesome pairs of shoes. (laughs) There's always the way of buying her favorite with shoes. If all else fails, buy her expensive shoes. Yeah. But, you know, I admire that you have the strength to want to proactively make the whole dynamic at your family home healthier. But I don't think you can do it instantly. Or without some patient, gentle, individual persistence. Yeah. All you can manage is your own self. So just remember that. Like, you're not going to change your brother. You're not going to change your parents. You're not going to change Catherine. You're not going to change the one-year-old. All you can show up for is who are you being around all these people? Who are you being as you relate to all of them? Don't even begin the ridiculous task of trying to change any of the other players. All you can do is change who you are and who you show up as for all these people. Yeah. And the more I think about the individual approach, I wonder if you could send your brother like a funny memory or like, hey, thinking about you, I'm really proud of you. I mean, maybe that's a little patronizing that he'll bristle against, but he's being a doofus. He probably has been for a long time, but he could probably really use your love and support and having someone kind of believe in him. Because he's probably really licking his wounds right now. Yeah. A 20-year-old and a divorce and a baby is most likely in an insecure, licking his wounds place. So always come at it from that perspective. Thank you so much. This has been really helpful. Good. The awesome thing is that you have the strength to take some blows and keep going with individual generosity and love. 
oh, Lena, I bet you miss them. And I know you want to help. I know your intentions are solid. Thank you. It was very nice to meet both of you. You Bye. too. Bye, Lena. I'm not sure she left completely satisfied. No, I think we did the best we could as unqualified therapists. I thought you gave great advice. We have a thing on our show because it's called Fake Doctors, Real Friends, where we tiptoe around giving advice. But we're always like, please consult a real therapist. We are fake doctors. We are not real doctors. (laughs) Analogous to your thing of being unqualified. I always feel the need to be like, this is just one idiot's two cents. I am 47, so I've been around the sun a few times. But please take it with a half a grain of salt. Do you have in your back pocket a memory of really good advice you've been given or really bad advice? The best advice is, I think the most simplest advice that I've been given that always helps me is this too shall pass. And you have to think of that as when you're in a joyful moment and you just feel like, holy shit, I'm acting naturally on life, savor it because it'll pass. And when you're in your lowest moment, it's horrible, but be with it because it's going to pass. I made up this own visualization in my head of like being in a beautiful spot on a river and it's just perfection. It's like you can hear the waterfall through the rocks and you can hear the birds and it's just perfection. And then you see this charred, gnarled, burnt trunk, a branch of wood floating down the river and it's really ugly and nasty and it's ruining the whole spirit of this perfect environment, but it's moving. And depending on how fast the water's moving, it could be there for 30 seconds or it could be there for an hour but it's still moving past you. And I think of that a lot when I'm going through a hard time that, okay, I'm in it. I'm looking at this proverbial gnarled, burnt piece of wood, but it is on the river and it is moving and this too shall pass. That's beautiful and helpful. Okay, let's say all forms of entertainment were outlawed. (laughs) What a horrible place. (laughs) I know. What skill sets do you have? What are your back pocket resources in terms of like making money? How would you do it? Oh, you mean with no further education like right now? Yeah. Oh, man. Um, Dog babysitter? Okay. Dog sitter. I love dogs. If I wasn't a busy person who travels a lot, I'd have like six dogs on my property. I have one. She's beautiful. I know. I keep seeing her jump on the couch and she's like waiting for you to be done. (laughs) Yeah, that's Billy. That's Billy. I joked to my friend, I should have named her Sarah Tonin because (laughs) she, uh, she just makes me so happy. It's funny you say that. Like I have things I love like architecture and design, but I would of course need to return to school. Oh, also I love flying, aviation. I have my pilot's license. Oh, that's incredible. That falls under, I would need more training to do that for a living, of course. But that is an area of something I really intrigued by. Will you tell me about what it's like, what kind of joy it gives you? I mean, I really love skiing and I love horseback riding. I'm okay at skiing. I'm not great at horseback riding. (laughs) But there is a mental place there that feels unique in each of those. Absolutely. So will you tell me about that with flying? In all three examples, you need to be so focused on what you're doing or you could hurt yourself badly. So it's a meditative in a bizarre way because you go into a place where you're so focused on what you're doing and what the next task is. Yes. That there's no room for that ticker tape of bullshit that you're talking to in your head about nonsense that's not helpful or healthy for you. You know, if you go up flying and take a lesson for an hour and a half or two hours, by the time you land, by the time you got to your car, you didn't think about anything other than flying for that time. And It's a really, really powerful way of going into a meditative state that I imagine, well, I ski a little bit too, so I can experience that that way. And also I imagine horseback riding is that way as well. Getting your pilot's license, did it make you more or less anxious to be a passenger on a commercial flight? Much less anxious. That's a relief. It's one of the reasons I did it, actually. I wasn't a great flyer. Back in the day, as you know, better than most people, we used to get these insane gift bags (laughs) that were full of really good, really great, amazing stuff. I know. (laughs) I know. We had no idea what jerks we were. I know. We would get these ridiculous gift bags for like presenting at an award show. Now they don't do it anymore because I think they finally decided they should tax these gift bags. And everyone was like, well, then I don't want to. Don't don't, don't hand me a tax burden. (laughs) But back when I was first starting out, one of the gift bags had a first flight lesson gift certificate. And I was intrigued and I thought, wow, you know, I am an anxious flyer. I bet if I learned the basics of aviation and took a two and a half hour lesson, that's all I would need. It would make me more relaxed flying. 
Well, I took it and it was in this really junker of a plane. I still loved it. I was so intrigued. And then I thought, wow, if there was a school that taught in like planes from this decade, <laughs> I might actually take a few more. So I did that. I found a school that had planes that didn't look like antiques and then got really into it and then kept going and then got my private pilot license. And it definitely made me way less afraid to fly because I knew what was happening. I knew not to be afraid of turbulence and I knew what the different noises were and all that stuff. That's amazing. It's inspiring to me. It feels like something that I would like as well. Oh, I really recommend it, even if you just take one lesson, because you go up and, first of all, it's just such a unique experience. You're flying low and, you know, the commercial planes just go right up to the 30,000s of feet, whereas in private flight, especially in propeller, not jet flight, you're flying, you know, anywhere from three to 12,000 feet and you're actually seeing the country and it's so cool and it's a really unique perspective that you only see if you try it. Do you collect anything? Cameras. I'm a bit of a camera geek. I have lots of cameras, both film and digital. Do you process the images yourself? I used to. You know, when I first moved to L.A. back in 2000, I would go to a darkroom. You could rent a darkroom space. And now occasionally I'll shoot film and I'll send it into a lab. I don't do it anymore. But now I have so many cool digital toys that, you know, 99% of the time I'm shooting digital. Have you ever written a fan letter? <laughs> wow, that's a good question. Um... I think to Quentin Tarantino, I did. I typed it out on my typewriter because I thought that would be centric enough for him to actually read it. Oh, <laughs> uh, I think that's the only one. You know, nowadays you can write someone a DM if you can find them. So I've done that before. Like a filmmaker who's made some amazing movie that I was just blown away by. I wrote him a DM. Do you mind mentioning the film or the filmmaker? It was the worst person in the world. Have you seen that film? No. Oh, you have to. Put that at the top of your list. When was that? It was 21, I think. Okay, worst person in the world. I will. I think it won Best Foreign Film at the Oscars. Joaquin Trier is the filmmaker's name, and he's spectacular. And you will love that movie. It just blew me away to a point where I went, I don't know if this guy's ever going to see it, but I'm just going to send him a holy shit, you're so talented message on Instagram. And he replied, and he was so thoughtful. I have really enjoyed this. Me too. You're so fun to talk to. It feels good to like have an evolution. Yeah, a good bookend. I feel in a much healthier place than when I first saw you. Me too. Yeah. I so appreciate you, Zach. Thank you. I appreciate you. Zach, thank you so very much. 